I'm grateful to get to preach in Duke Chapel again. I grew up in Chapel Hill as a Duke fan, which won me a lot of friends. I went to seminary here at Duke. I did doctoral work here. I worked and taught here. So this is my third or fourth tour of duty on this campus. I love where I teach now at the Vancouver School of Theology. And from that vantage, on that coast, in another country, I can see just how special Duke Chapel is. I mean, who would have thought to mash together a replica of Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago and Canterbury Cathedral in England and then build it in the middle of a pine forest in central North Carolina in the 1920s? I mean, that's an ambition big enough for James B. Duke. But only God could have also said, yeah, and let's have an African-American architect, Julian Abel, design the whole thing in quiet subversion of Jim Crow segregation laws at the time. I love Terry Sanford's description of Duke as a place of outrageous ambition. And what could be more outrageous, what more ambitious than to have vibrant Christian worship at the heart of a world-renowned university. And it makes me wonder, what other blessings from God do we take for granted that if we stopped and considered them just a moment would stagger us beyond repair? Like this prayer from Jesus that most of us say every day without often stopping and contemplating the words. We live in strange days in our country. Lots of people want to do something, anything, to counter the crazy. Well, one thing we can do, Jesus says, is pray. I know it feels weak. It's actually the strongest thing there is. And Jesus, in these stories this morning, tells us how to do it. Now, if you're already an expert on prayer, you can quietly get up, go get yourself a coffee, and pray for the rest of us. But most of us would agree that prayer is really, really hard. Now, if you're an expert on prayer, you know this even better. But if you're beginning with faith, if it's all new to you, prayer can feel kinda stupid, like you're talking to yourself, like you're just as crazy as your non-religious friends think you are. But if you're practiced in it, you know it's even harder than that. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, maybe the most widely recognized saint of the 20th century, found prayer painfully difficult for decades. Now, this is interesting. It's as though the more practiced we are with God's presence, the more God removes the comfort of the divine presence. As if God doesn't have to rush to our side to reassure us like an anxious boyfriend every few minutes. Another text, please show me I still exist. Frederick Buechner says, prayer is for children and the childlike. For children and the childlike. Because to pray, you have to be able to wonder and trust and receive a gift. The rest of us will struggle. So Jesus gives us stories like these read 
this morning. The first is from Genesis, and it's about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, these two cities are still associated in folks' imagination with certain specific sexual sins. This is wrong. The prophet Ezekiel makes this clear. Sodom and Gomorrah were condemned for their lack of hospitality to the stranger, the refugee, and the guest. Ezekiel 16.49, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride and excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Some visions of greatness today include neglecting the poor or going out of your way to crush them. This makes God furious. And Abraham has to talk God down off the ledge. Abraham bargains with God like they're haggling in a Middle Eastern bazaar, like an expert at the Saturday yard sales. And it makes me wonder, what if we prayed like that? Some think of God as removed, disinterested, like a judge in our case who doesn't remember our name and doesn't care. Genesis shows God is hot-blooded, passionate, and quaking with anger. Let me at him. I'm going to kill him. Abraham says, no, 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 God, it, you can't do that. You, you know what people will say if you do that. <laughs> Abraham knows God and plays on divine vanity shames God into acting like, well, God. I mean, God, if there are 50 righteous people in the city, you won't kill the whole city, right? For the sake of those 50 righteous? Well, Abraham, I guess you're right. I won't kill them all. Okay, God, how about 45? <laughs> and Abraham talks God all the way down to 10 righteous people, which they can't find, and so the city is destroyed, which is a bummer. But here's the point. Abraham prays boldly and cleverly, and God relents. Remember this story. Anytime someone tries to tell you the God of the Bible is cruel or mean, God is passionate, cares profoundly, and can be argued with. God is mercy all the way down even if God occasionally needs us to pray and remind God of that. Now, I've tried to pray this way. It's a little weird. I invite you to try it. God, don't you let cancer take that one. You know what people will say about you if you do. God, don't let someone like that rule in your world. You know people will despair if you do. I don't know if this kind of prayer works. I just know these kinds of stories are in the Bible inviting us to do likewise. Eventually, God finds one righteous person for whose sake God doesn't destroy any of it. Abraham was right to pray boldly and cleverly. Abraham just didn't quite go far enough. This one righteous person is Jesus, God's own self. Our second story is from Luke, where Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. Now, usually, if you ask Jesus a question, he won't answer it. He deflects it, he plays defense, 
He jujitsus it into some other conversation. Not here. The disciples ask the perfect question for the first time. Lord, how do we pray? And Jesus launches right in with an answer for the first time ever, as if they finally asked a good question. I thought you'd never ask. I was in Israel last year, and I came home with a prayer in Aramaic, the Lord's Prayer, on a postcard. And at security, they grabbed that thing from me, and they frowned at it, and they passed it around to one another and pointed at me. I think they thought it looked scary. It was in Arabic and a prayer. I said, hey, it's just a postcard. It costs 50 cents. Let me go home. But what if I'd said, you know, you're right. There's a revolution in that prayer. Anybody who takes it seriously should be detained. We human beings are what we do regularly. The church repeats this prayer of Jesus so that it'll steep in our bones, so it will work on us when we're not even thinking about it. I heard a poet defend memorizing poetry, and he said the reason you do it is for someday when you lack words. Then that prayer you memorized will sneak up and give you a kiss that you didn't expect. That's why we memorize the Lord's Prayer. For that moment of crisis, when we don't know what to say, when we have no prayer. Rabbi Steve Sager from here in Durham talks about watching other tourists at the Grand Canyon express their amazement. They would say things like, holy cow, which is sort of religious, but it's somebody else's religion, right? <laughs> or they would say cuss words having to do with God or excrement or sex. What did Rabbi Sager and his family say? They said the Jewish blessing in the presence of a natural wonder. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe. Thou hast done great things on earth and in heaven. It's a little better, isn't it? But then the Lord's Prayer we usually pray isn't quite like the one we just heard. Let's pray together the version in Luke. It'll feel a little weird, but pray after me. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. That's it. No hour, no who art in heaven, no thy will be done. No deliver us from evil, no thine is the kingdom, etc. This is the Cliff's Notes version of an already very short prayer. Jesus is always in a hurry. Now, depending on your Bible translation, it may read very differently because this kind of passage really bothered poor scribes who had to write the thing down. They'd say, hey, I'm a monk. I say that prayer every hour, and that ain't how it goes. So they'd change it. This is as close as we can get to what St. Luke probably wrote down. Our more familiar version of it comes from King James translations of other Gospels. But for this morning, let's just let it stay weird. And then you can go back to King Jimmy's version if you want later. First, Father. Jesus teaches us to address God as Father, Abba, Daddy. Daddy. 
Some of us immediately recoil. What if we had poor relationships with our fathers? What about mothers? Don't they get a little love? So I've heard some change this prayer to gender neutral and address God as our parent. Sounds kind of cold, right? And I've heard others change it and address God as our mother father, which sounds sort of like something you shouldn't say in public. Here's the thing, in Jesus' day, in the Greco-Roman world, parents had unimaginable power over their children. They could love their children, and I'm sure most did, or they could kill their children, sell them into slavery, beat them. So it's not that the word father was altogether positive when this was written. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as father a handful of times. God is referred to as mother a handful of times. Jesus refers to God as father hundreds of times. He takes this tradition and makes it his own. So when we call God father, we're not just taking our own experiences of our dads and projecting them on the sky. Rather, we're speaking to God the way Jesus does. We're speaking to God the way Jesus is. And I hope this can be healing for those who've had poor relationships or painful ones with their fathers. There is a father who does not abandon and does not betray and never will. A friend of mine was in Israel this year and was sitting by a playground and he heard a little girl run up squealing to her father and he heard her yelling, Abba, 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 Abba. And he said, I will never pray that prayer the same again. Now, whatever it means to call God Father, it doesn't mean that God is male. God doesn't have sexual parts or God would be a creature. And the Son of God is not sexually generated and there is no mother involved. And the Son of God is not younger than the Father, unlike every human child and parent. Every analogy limps, especially with reference to God. How can we imagine the one we're talking about? We call God Father because we're growing into the intimacy Jesus has with the one who sent him. And here's the thing. There is no safe language. We can replace this with some other language, and it'll do harm too. The trick is how to use this language we've been gifted with well. Hallowed be your name. I remember learning this part and thinking it had something to do with Halloween. And it does. It's the same bundle of words having to do with the word holy. To hallow something is to make it holy. And to hallow a name is to bless the Lord's name. Names have power. If I said your personal name right now, you'd be shocked. The power in names is why Donald Trump invents humiliating nicknames for his rivals. It's why we give affectionate nicknames to the people we care about. The actual name of God, you see, is known only to God. There's a reason the Jews left the vowels out of this word. It's not safe to say. So, of course, scholars rush in and add the vowels and guess, ah, it must be Yahweh. We don't know that. 
And presumably, if anyone ever said the name of God correctly, they'd like explode like the bad guys in an Indiana Jones movie. Here's how the prayer works. When God's people behave the way God wants, God's name is hallowed, blessed, made holy. And when we don't, God's name is disrespected, soiled, stomped on. Here's what strikes me. You'd think God would have better sense than to leave God's reputation in the hands of people like us. Wouldn't you? I mean, isn't that kind of careless and indiscriminate of God to say, hey, my reputation is riding on y'all. That y'all is in the original Greek, by the way. Your kingdom come. This is the kingdom Jesus preached. One where the poor are blessed and sins are forgiven and everyone has enough, not too much, not too little. There's an old joke that Jesus preached the kingdom, but all that came was the church. Sorry, church nerd humor is hard to come by. Here's what the kingdom is about. God's blessings aren't for us. They're through us for everybody else. And God's kingdom isn't about life in heaven far away someday. It's about God's beautiful world that we've wrecked that God will never let go of. Not ever. Here's the problem with faith. Maybe it's just a problem with being human beings. When God chooses us, loves us, honors us, marries us, we think it's for us. (laughs) But it's not for us. It's for all the others through us. And again, I'd have thought that God would have had a more expedient way to save the whole universe than the church. I mean, I've been a pastor. I've led these committee meetings. We can't even agree on who gets a key or what kind of coffee to make at what time, right? And we're the people through whom God promises to bless everybody else. I mean, God, weren't there better, holier people around through whom you could have done this? Give us each day our daily bread. Not our daily caviar, not our daily kale protein shake with locally sourced seasonal fruits, just bread, a simple, hearty meal. In occupied France in World War II, parents realized their kids would sleep better if they sent them to sleep with a loaf of bread. It was a way of saying, there'll be something to eat tomorrow. And that's more literally what this prayer says. Give us today tomorrow's bread. When Jesus sends out missionaries, he tells them to take nothing with them. They're to be totally dependent on the hospitality of the ones they're preaching to. And Jesus tucks this missionary prayer into his most famous prayer. So anytime we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're putting ourselves in the position of a missionary sent by Jesus totally vulnerable to the ones to whom we're bringing his words. This is also a prayer for manna. When the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness 40 years, God gives manna to eat. And if anyone tries to gather up too much, it rots. If anyone's too weak to gather up enough, 
there is miraculously enough. And I wonder whether this is how God provides for us. Not too much. Too much and it'll rot in your soul. Not too little. God wants no one to have too little. An artist friend of mine in Vancouver says his art took off when he realized he wouldn't starve. He would never be rich, never own property in that city, never fulfill the dreams his parents had when they sent him to college, but he also wouldn't die hungry and alone. And he said, when I realized that, my art started to soar. And he asks us, what would you do if you weren't afraid economically? The market wants us afraid, terrified, working nonstop, charging too much on credit cards, never paying off balances. God's economy says, stop. There is enough. You can rest. So on the eve of the Sabbath in the wilderness, God said, gather up two days worth of manna so you can rest on the Sabbath. And it wouldn't rot. God believes in rest. The marketplace does not. And people accuse God of being a cruel taskmaster? Give us this day our daily bread. A simple, hearty prayer for simple, hearty food. And notice the us. This isn't a prayer for a microwave meal scarfed down alone. It's not a prayer for a drive through meal that you don't even think about. It's a prayer for a full table with guests and strangers. And it's a table where Christ is the real host. And Christ is the stranger and guest whom you've invited. And Christ is the food on the table. That's why we pray anytime we eat for a glimpse of that. Forgiveness. A whole sermon or series of sermons on this one. Jesus binds up God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of other people. You can't have one without the other. St. Augustine says, nothing so trounces the enemy as our mercy to others. Nothing so trounces the enemy as our mercy to others. Scripture says two things about forgiveness. One, we all desperately need it, especially when we think we don't. And two, it's the kind of thing you can only have forgiveness if you immediately give it away to someone else. And if there's anything our gospel has to say in this world of meanness, it's this. God is altogether mercy. The only God there is, is altogether mercy. Now, you may have noticed there are translation problems with this one. Is it debts? Is it trespasses? Is it sins? What do these words mean? Here's why. When Jesus talks about mercy, he always includes economics. And when he talks about economics, he always includes mercy. The best thing you can do to say thanks for God's mercy is to forgive someone a debt they can't repay. Did I mention this prayer was subversive? 
Do not bring us to the time of trial. Now note, there will be trials. Our Lord and Master, who we model our lives after, died strung up and tortured to death. It won't be easy for us. And yet lots of prayers go up to God asking for comfort, ease, happiness, and success. That's fine for a start. I like the joke about the guy who's late, desperate for a parking place, and he's praying, God, if you give me a parking place, I'll go to church, I'll tithe, I'll stop cheating. Oh, wait, never mind. Here's a spot, Lord. Just try following Jesus in a world where people think crushing the poor is Christian and see what happens. No wonder Jesus promises hardship. This prayer asks for just a little relief from the hardship. God, don't make it worse. A little mercy, please. It's the prayer of anyone who's ever suffered. And here's what God does. God hears every prayer, offers mercy we often can't see. God is eternal mercy. In fact, God is the only answer to every prayer. Everyone who prays, even if they don't know it, is actually asking for more of God. And the only answer God ever gives to prayer is more of God, which is all we actually need. Now, Jesus goes on and tells some stories about prayer. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give the child a snake instead of a fish? Or if any of your children ask for an egg, will you give them a scorpion? That's supposed to be funny. Biblical humor is kind of an acquired taste. But he says this, look, no terrible father gives their kid a scorpion at snack time. Right? Well, if even a terrible father wouldn't do that, what about a good God? We can ask and God will give. God won't necessarily give what we ask for, but God doesn't mean us harm. God promises the Holy Spirit, God's own self, in response to every prayer. Not a parking place, not revenge or piles of happiness or success, but God's own self. And when we pray, what God does is God stretches our souls to fill them with more of God, to make us holy and like Jesus. God pours blessings into us so they'll overflow to all the others God wants to bless as well. Then Jesus tells this story. Let's say someone comes to your house in the middle of the night and you have no bread because you, Jesus, told us not to save up bread just one day, remember? Anyway, and you bang on your friend's door. Hey, I need bread for my friend. And your friend says, go away. This is a bad friend. Textbook definition. If you keep on knocking... Eventually, your friend can be manipulated into giving what you want, right? Well, God does not need to be manipulated into being good to us. God does not need to be reminded to do the right thing. God will give us what we need, not necessarily what we want or when we want it, and not too much and not too little, but bread Mercy, forgiveness, 
so then we can give those things to others. This is what prayer is. When Carol prays the pastoral prayer in just a minute, part of what she's saying is, hey, God, we've invited all these people, refugees and immigrants and people who know nothing of God, and they're hungry, and we need bread for them and mercy for them and forgiveness for them. Can you give those things to us, God? And God's not sleeping, and God's not annoyed. God is always ready to give. God's not a bad friend, and God's not a terrible father. God is nothing but mercy. It's a story I love about prayer and Mother Teresa, the aforementioned. She's asked by a famous journalist, what do you say when you pray? And she says, nothing. I listen. What does God say when you listen? Nothing. God listens. Now the journalist is really confused, and she finishes him off this way. And if you can't understand that, I can't explain it to you. I love that. This leathery old woman and God sitting in each other's presence, not saying anything. Like an old married couple with no more secrets, heard each other's stories, they're just enjoying one another's presence, maybe a cross word occasionally. Here's what we can do when we pray. We ask God, God, would you make us holy like that one day? And here's what God will say. This is amazing. Are you ready for this? God will say, yes. Amen. Amen.